I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. Karen Wyatt. She's a physician, author, and spiritual teacher, changing how individuals face end of life. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So welcome, Dr. Karen Wyatt. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm delighted to be here talking to you. So tell me, how did you get interested in helping individuals at end of life? Well, it came about because I was suffering from grief myself. It was I was a family practice physician in practice, and my father died from suicide. And I was really devastated with grief and guilt over his death. And after about three years of struggling, I wasn't finding my way through the grief. And I got the idea that maybe if I volunteered for hospice and just immersed myself in death and dying, maybe I'd find a way out of the grief. Then once I got there and saw my very first patient, made my first home visit, I realized that that was actually where I was meant to be all along, that I was home, and that caring for dying patients was really the work I was I was meant to do. So I ended up leaving family practice and going into hospice full time. Wow. How long did you work for... Um, hospice. So I worked full time for eight years. Then we we moved to um, Colorado to a little rural town, and I ended up becoming a volunteer again because we didn't have a paid position here in hospice. So you've been involved for a, quite a while. A long time, yeah, like twenty five years of my career. All because of your father. Yeah. And so it, it became interesting that his death kind of shifted my path altogether. And then I ended up writing a book. And, you know, it, it kind of it kind of led to everything that I'm doing now. And so it has been redeeming in a way. And it had really helped me heal my grief over losing him. So do you think over the years, um, 25 years is a long time working with death and dying, um, have you seen an evolution with people and how they see end of life and death? Absolutely. I, I see it on multiple levels. I see our society gradually beginning to open up a little bit and be more more open to conversations, more willing to think ahead about death and dying, though it's slow. <laughs> we have a long way to go. But I see some positive changes in healthcare as well, and I'm encouraged by that. But we're seeing still incremental changes in the medical schools. Yeah, why is that? Well, one thing I've seen, I've seen a few medical schools trying to implement end of life, some sort of end of life training for medical students, but they don't have any faculty members who have worked with death and dying. They, there aren't enough teachers available right now. So there, uh, you know, doctors like me, we're still doing hospice. We're still, we're not in the academics world training people. We're still out in the world caring for patients. So we have a real shortage of teachers who can actually teach medical students about death and dying. I think that's one one problem. And there, then there's still just our general societal resistance to the subject that we're, we're making progress, as you said, incrementally. So it's happening, but it, it will take some time. 
Do you think people are, I mean, still connecting, you know, hospice equals death? Um, and what I've seen over the last years, I mean, hospice length of stay, patients are spending a lot less time in hospice. Yes. Um, you, I, see, I see it going down. It's a 180-day benefit. And I believe, I was just talking to a hospice organization the other day, and 59% of their patients died within 14 days. Yes, I think that's still a huge problem for, for hospice right now, is that hospice is being viewed as simply terminal care. And I was down visiting with Denver Hospice in their inpatient care unit, and they're telling me they're getting these last-ditch referrals, like like the ICU is sending someone out on a ventilator um, who has 24 hours to live. And they said they have, they have a lot of patients in their u- inpatient unit that live one or two days. So they're providing this intense, acute care at the very end of life for a patient they've had no opportunity to know, the family they don't know at all, they've never connected before. And the patient had this traumatic transfer in the very last few days of life. And so that's that's a very sad thing that's happening right now. I, I think hospitals, some hospitals are using hospice as a dumping ground because they don't want the stats of how many, their stats to go up of deaths in the hospital. So they're just discharging people right before they die. Do you think that um, also um, the patients and families are still struggling with that? No, because I'm seeing like actively uh, patients actively dying and the family is like, she's not dying. Um, everybody's okay. And, and when they do pass away, everybody's in shock. And I, there, I think there's definitely some resistance on the family coming to a, uh, a point of... Um, a knowledge of that, hey, mom's dying. Do you feel like that's also still a major issue? Yes, I think I think that's still a huge problem. And I think until we make progress in our societal and cultural values around death, it will be hard for the healthcare system to change because in many ways, the healthcare system is reacting to what they're hearing from patients and families and the resistance that they're meeting. And just as you were alluding to just the other day, I met a woman in her 70s, whose 95 year old mother had just died, and she was in shock. She was in complete shock that her mother died at 95. And I said, don't at some point, don't you start even recognizing mom's getting old now? (laughs) She's, I mean, don't you start to embrace the idea that mom won't be with us forever. And she had never considered it or thought of it. And so that's a big problem, the big denial issue in our society, which leads to a whole other issue when it comes to grief. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's one reason our grief is so hard to manage and we bury it and we and we don't deal with it. I, on my part, I think that's also an issue for doctors in particular, probably for nurses too. But because what I, as I looked back on my medical training, I had a lot of cumulative grief from seeing patients die, seeing tragedies unfold before my eyes, trying to save someone's life and failing. And no one ever, ever talked to me about the impact of that, about the impact of loss or the impact of having someone die under my hands. That was never a conversation that was held. And so as I look back on it, I think doctors also have a lot of trauma and grief that they've stored up. And they, in turn, don't want to deal with death and dying because they don't want that pain to to come to the surface. That's a really good point. So, 
the last few years, I would say maybe five, we're talking, we're hearing a lot about advanced care planning and about advanced care directives and fill out conversations, fill out the documents. So if you wind up in the healthcare system, people will know what your wishes are. What I'm finding is that um, people are doing this and sometimes in an acute setting, it's not being followed. What is your experience with this? Yes, I think I think that people might be who are completing advanced directives might have unrealistic expectations that this piece of paper means everything will go the way I want it to at the end of life. And for Frankly, there are just so many, so many, an infinite number of possibilities of what can happen to you on the trajectory of life and what circumstances might be there when you meet the end of life that one piece of paper honestly is not going to control or change very much about what happens. But the beauty of it is, at least when people have taken the time to sit down and fill out the paper, they've at least thought about, thought about the fact that I will die someday. That is progress. And hopefully they've talked to someone about it. So I think the conversations are needed. I think we do need the paperwork, but we need realistic expectations that it may not actually change the circumstances when you when you do die. So there's a movement going on. Um, a lot of people call it a lot of different things, medical aid and dying, um, physician suicide, um, death with dignity. You know, what are you thinking about this movement um, when it comes to this option in only five states right now? Um, what is What do you think is happening um, when it comes to um, death with dignity? It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because here we are in this society that doesn't want to talk about or deal with death at all. And then we have a whole movement to provide aid in dying for people. So it's really interesting that we, we cover the entire spectrum of how people could react. And I personally have some mixed feelings about it, um, partly because having spent time with so many people in the last few days of life, and I've seen amazing transformations. I've seen people heal their relationships. I've seen people learn how to love. I've seen them forgive. And I really feel like it it only happens sometimes in those very last few days. So I don't want to see anyone miss that opportunity by deciding to check out earlier and avoid that entire last phase of life. But on the other hand, I understand that for some people, natural dying, the natural process of death may be create too much suffering for the patient and the family. It may cause too much harm. And I can understand cases where it, it would be better to, and more humane if they had another alternative. So I feel like it's probably something that we need in place in our society. My hope is that we offer people such fantastic palliative and hospice care that very few people will ever need to use it. Do you think those who are getting this prescription field, there, there's so many other guidelines and restrictions on, um, you know, how this is be, being implemented in these five states, but there's, a, there's some people that just like to have it because it's control, that they, they don't use it. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I absolutely, I think that's something that's actually really important for us. I think we cope with things better when we have a sense that we have some sort of control over things. And I think for many people, they fear so much what might happen when I'm dying. Will I have too much pain? What if I can't handle it? And knowing that they have an alternative lets them keep moving forward and seeing what does happen and what is there. And then they get 
get to that point and find it's not as bad as I feared. And I don't really need, I don't need to leave earlier. I don't need to take this. Um, so I think it could be comfort for people. And I think that's another reason why it probably is an important step. But it's so interesting, we're already at the point of making that decision when here we're struggling to get people to even recognize that they're mortal and that they will die someday. Now, how do you think this whole um, medical aid and dying is going to affect hospice care? How, should hospices start preparing for, um, for this medical aid and dying? movement? I think they absolutely should. And I think they should know what their position is on on it, because I think they'll be they'll be asked questions. And they, they will be asked whether or not they can support it or not. And some patients might make their choice of hospice based on um, each hospice's values and, and what they can provide. So I think hospice definitely needs to, to prepare for it. And those who have some openness to it, because they're not restricted, you know, by by religious tenets, may want to really think about becoming a partner. I mean, being accepting and being willing to help those patients. The better hospice care people get, the fewer people will need that alternative. And so what I've seen is sometimes hospices say, we won't work with anyone who's considering that. But I think that's the wrong approach. I think it's far better to say, let us care for you and let us let us help you in the meantime and give you the best care possible. Maybe you won't even need to make that choice. You know, I I I don't know a lot of details, nor should anyone. Um, but Brittany Maynard, who moved from California to Oregon, um, I never knew she had hospice, and um, and it 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 can work together. Um, it can, and we need. And you're right. I think openness of, um making sure that we're not projecting in healthcare, we're not projecting the death we think we, the patient should have, but actually listening to how do you want to move through this? Um, and I, I find myself struggling with that because of, of my years in healthcare, you know, you have boxes to check and sometimes you forget just to stop checking and say, how do you want to move forward? Um, and through this process, your book is probably one of um, my favorite Oh, thank you. Yeah, your book is really great, What Really Matters. Um, and you have seven lessons that you have learned um, that you talk about in this book. Can you talk to us a little bit about your book and those seven lessons or a few of them? Sure, yeah. The book absolutely came from my work in hospice because it changed me. It changed everything about how I live my life. And I knew, I knew early on, like, I need to write this down. I need to write the stories and I need to write about it. And so the first lesson that I learned was to really be able to look at suffering as a normal part of our lives. And that includes death and dying. It's a normal part of everyone's life. It's part of what, what we're here to experience. So rather than running away from suffering or trying to avoid it, we really need to be able to embrace it. And that's finally what helped me cope with my grief over my dad's death was that I walked right into it instead of trying to run away by going into hospice work. I faced it. I faced the pain and I walked right into the middle of it. That's when I found 
how to find meaning in it and how to make sense of it and how to find life inside that kind of grief. And so from there, the other lessons started flowing to me. Um, the next one being love, which was profound as I saw it. I saw so many patients who really some discovered love for the first time in the last few weeks of their lives. They, they became aware of how much, how important their family members were to them and began to express love. And they hadn't really experienced it before. And um, forgiveness was the same thing. A, a lot of those same people had forgiveness issues that they needed to overcome. So, so for me, what it meant for me in my life is I want to start working on love and forgiveness right now. I want to focus on those every day of my life right now and make sure I'm not holding on to lots of anger and resentment toward people. Make sure I'm trying to express love in my life in every way I can because then when I get to my deathbed, I will feel some prepared. I will feel that I've lived this meaningful life that has depth and quality to every day and every moment. You also are a vessel, in my opinion, of knowledge and education. And what you are doing um, through your website and your podcast, talk to us a little bit about you know, the end of life university. Um, I, so I, I just think it's such a valuable, valuable tool, um, that you've created. Um, and you're very brave. I don't see any other tools out there like this. And, and it's, and you, you don't, you don't come across as a physician, but you are. And, and so I feel like I can relate to some of the things that you're talking about because you're not in that med speak. So tell us a little bit about the, the tools that you have and resources for those who want to learn more about death and dying. Well, end of life university, I started three years ago as, um, I started just doing some interviews with people who worked in the end of life. I've discovered that I was learning so much because I'd never heard of green burial before. And I started interviewing people who knew about that. I'd never heard of home funerals. And I interviewed people about that. And I found like, wow, this is fascinating. I'm learning so much. And I post the interviews online so that people can listen to them and learn along with me. But um, now I have over 100 interviews in the archives. And they're on every possible subject you can imagine about death and dying. So I've realized this is becoming a valuable resource for people to just listen. And my original intent was people who are a little afraid of the subject can and too afraid to talk about it themselves could sit down and listen to two other people who are talking about it and listen to in on the conversation and think, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Those two aren't really scared. They're talking about death and they're not afraid of it. Maybe there's something for me here. So that was my hope, just putting all these conversations out so people could hear them. Now what I've discovered too is that End of Life University has become a bit of a hub for people who are working in the end of life because a lot of them, they've tuned into my interviews, they've heard about somebody across the country doing work that they want to know more about and they're connecting, people are collaborating and doing projects together. And so suddenly I saw, wow, there's a real value in creating this network of people who are aware of death and dying, willing to talk about it, and who are doing great work in, in this area. So that's what I feel is happening. I didn't know what would happen when I first started, but that's what's coming about because of it. A lot of people still are confused about hospice, but also about something called palliative care. Um, and I want to tap into your uh, MD 
um, knowledge with how do we explain palliative care to the average individual? Well, I try to explain to explain to them that it is care for the whole person that happens when you are dealing with a very serious illness that might be life limiting, and. It's care that goes way beyond just treating an illness or a disease. It treats the person. So I, that's how I try to begin by explaining it. It's care that treats all of your symptoms, that helps your family, that treats body, mind, and spirit, that looks at all of those aspects of illness to help you navigate this journey, whether you recover from the illness or whether you um, your illness progresses. So that's how I try to begin talking about palliative care because it's it's less frightening than if palliative care is too connected to hospice and people think, oh no, it's only, they're going to just let me die. So, um, and also the fact that palliative care can be offered side by side with treatment. So the patient can still be in curative treatment and receive this whole person palliative care that, that looks at all of their needs as a human being. Because I do think that just, you know, medical aid and dying um, is a movement. I think this whole palette of care is a movement. Um, and it's getting, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but suddenly people are talking about it. Um, and why do you think that is? I, I don't know. I think I think it seems like it's becoming a trend. And I'm seeing more and more hospitals now have palliative care departments. And I think we're opening up to the idea that um, people should be should be offered more holistic care. I think that's becoming an awareness that we have as a society, that we want things that we don't just want compartmentalized, fragmented care. We want something that feels holistic, that feels like it, like um, it embraces all of us and all of life. Even you and me, we're going to face end of life one day. It's, it's a destination we're all heading on. Um, how, how do you want to face your end or how do you hope to face your end of life? Well, if I, if I have the opportunity to have a, an expected death, you know, a slower course of death over time, I'd love to be at home. I'd rather not be in any kind of facility. I'd love to have my family nearby. But I've made it really clear to my family, if for any reason they can't take care of me or it's a burden, it's okay. Put me in a facility. If I don't want to be on a ventilator, but if for some reason I end up on one <laughs> because of someone's good intentions or misguided intentions, that's okay too. You know, I, I want to already offer all forgiveness for wh however it comes because I, I know I'll die. I'll manage to die one way or another in the process. And I don't want to leave my family with any kind of burden of guilt of thinking, oh, mom really wanted this and it didn't happen. I don't want them to feel that at all. As long as I know that I'm loved and that I've brought love to the world, then I'm going to be okay. I'm going to make my transition and I'll be okay with that. And I already know that right now. That's amazing. I've never heard anybody like describe it like that. That's amazing. I think that's, I, I might adopt that. <laughs> that's, that's a really great way to see things because people are going to feel guilty about, well, gosh, if that's what she wanted and it didn't go that way, they're going to carry that guilt. And you, wow, I, Thank you for sharing that because that just opened my eyes to a whole new way of of providing that forgiveness prior to anything happening. Um, so 
I do believe, and I use um, your end of life university um, tools and materials a lot to help me. How do individuals find you? So the, the website for End of Life University, it's eoluniversity.com. And they can go to that website. And if they just sign up on the mailing list, they'll start getting emails that will tell them about the interviews that I'm doing. And then I have a personal website where I have uh, my books and courses, which is KarenWyattMD.com. And you also, you make the rounds with speaking engagements. You've come to help my hospice organization out in Wilmington, North Carolina, but you do help and come speak at other um, hospices and throughout the, the other speaking with palliative and hospice and community events. You, you do a lot of speaking engagements. Yes, I love doing that too. I enjoy the travel. It was really fun to come to Wilmington. And If somebody wants to come or you to come speak for the um to their organization they find you on your website as well yes yes i have a tab a speaking tab on the website on karenwyattmd.com and so they can read about it and on eol university there's some there's also a page that has the the presentations i most commonly do a little description of each presentation that's great so they can go to either website and find information karen thank you so much for your time you are changing how people are facing end of life by all of these tools and um, I just appreciate all your hard work and um, it's really great knowing you and I'm so glad that we're collaborating and we're going to continue to collaborate throughout the many years and um, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Kimberly. Thanks for having me and I'm and uh, much success with your podcast and all of your ventures and I know we'll stay in touch. Thanks for joining us today and remember, you're the designer.